0: Begin the song exactly where you are. A small piece of personal trivia, which will come as perhaps no surprise to my more regular listeners, is that I did a lot of theater in high school. I loved the community it provided, the rush of creating something that made people laugh and cry and be entertained for hours on end, and the pure pleasure of inhabiting stories that captured my own imagination and the imagination of an audience and bringing those to life but one of the things i loved most about theater were the fun games we would play to get into the habit of acting with and against each other and one of those games uh, was something called freeze now freeze is what you would call an improv game and the premise was fairly simple you would begin uh, two actors would begin a scene um, they would improv the scene together. It was unfolding what happened. And then at some point during the other times, somebody else in the audience would yell, freeze! And both the actors have to freeze in position. Um, the person who yelled freeze would go and tap one of the actors on stage's position, and they'd adopt it. And they'd begin a brand new scene in which the other partner had to go um, go with whatever story they told, whatever, whatever character they were given. And I loved this, first of all, because... Um, It often ended in laughter and usually had a comedic bent, which is why games like this are often used in improv comedy. Um, But also there's this thrill of making a story up with someone in live time, on stage, and seeing other people react to it. But in improv and in this particular game, there is a fundamental rule that everyone has to follow if it's going to work. And this is commonly known as the yes and principle, which is that when you are in the scene, you can never say, you can never reject whatever reality is given to you uh, by the other actor. So if you unfreeze in the scene and someone says, quick, the purple elephant is running across the lawn. uh, Your only rule in this game is that you can't say, no, it's not. Uh, Part of the fun is that you react to what the other person has given you. And so you say, yes, and, and then you add your own bit to the scene. And this is how you work together to create a crazy story and everyone laughs and uh, there's that great satisfaction of playing out a narrative in real time together. So it's the yes and principle, saying yes to whatever is given in the scene and then adding your own agency into it. Now, the reason I tell you the story of my misspent youth in theater and this silly game with this silly principle is because I think it actually has a lot to teach us about life and about how to live life both courageously and contentedly. This season of Speaking With Joy, we've thought a lot about the things that are given to us. We have thought about the restraints that give us freedom. We've thought about the interplay between waiting for God to appear to us in prayer and our own attitude of receptiveness and openness. And as I come to this final episode in the season of Speaking with Joy, I wanted to kind of cap it off with thinking about our whole lives in terms of agency and acceptance. Saying yes to what our life is, looking reality in the face and taking it for all of its glory and its barrenness. And also accepting the and, that we have the capacity to choose and shape and live in a way that shapes our own stories and the stories of those around us. But saying yes and to life is actually much more complicated than it might seem on the surface. For one thing, humans are masters of self-deception. And so often, whether we mean to or not, we make our lives and others into something that we want them to be rather than what they are, so that we're never truly saying yes to the life that we have and the people that we are. On the other hand, saying yes to life can be difficult when the thing that we are accepting is pain or loss or regret. Oftentimes, as we wrestle to say yes to the life we've been given, we realize the life we've been given is not the life that we want. And that leads us to another problem, which is that in saying yes to life, what if we find in ourselves a fear that all that we're saying yes to is a continual transience, We wonder if there's a place for our feet to stand as we try to shape our lives into something good and worthwhile. These are just a few of the many complications of being a human, of improving our way through life, of saying yes to all the goodness and complications and pains of being a human, so that we can say, and adding our own agency. So today, we'll be looking at these two ideas, acceptance and agency together, capping off our final episode for this season of Speaking with Joy. This episode will examine three ideas. The first is to begin where you are. The second is to grieve what you must. And the third is to do what you can. Along with our pieces of artwork, which of course will be the literary, the poem, um, The Singing Bowl by Malcolm Gite, Second, for our visual example, we'll be looking at the ladies in Lavender. And finally, for our musical example, we'll be looking at the soliloquy and Chavert's Suicide in the musical version of Les Mis. So I hope that you'll join me in this episode thinking about how we can begin to say yes and to life, telling a good story in partnership with God. But before we dive in a few other announcements and reminders and thanks the first is that i will be revamping last year's advent episodes and putting them back up on the podcast again Um, having done a little bit of editing and sound editing so they'll come through even more clearly for you all so next week we begin advent next sunday so you can start looking for um, four episodes on themes of advent Uh, and the history of that, and the church, and some meditations on major themes within it. So look forward to that, and stay tuned for those old episodes re-edited and begun again. I also would be remiss if I didn't say thank you so much both to the Anselm Society, who sponsors Speaking with Joy, um, and they work with artists and churches in the, the Rocky Mountain area, and also a huge thanks to all of my supporters on Patreon, I could not do this without you all, especially as I make it through my last year of PhD. Having support um, to both do the podcast and do my PhD means that I can live and throw myself fully into the work that is ahead of me. I couldn't do this podcast, and I honestly couldn't do the PhD without your support and help, so thank you so much. And If you're interested in seeing what Patreon is all about, just go to patreon.com forward slash joyclarkson. And last but not least, it always helps me so much uh, if you leave a rating and review on iTunes and also subscribe if you enjoy this episode. That helps the show get out to other listeners who listen to similar podcasts to you. So I'd be very thankful if you enjoy this episode, if you'd head over and leave a rating and review on iTunes. But without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode, exploring acceptance and agency. The yes and of life
1: singing bowl begin the song exactly where you are remain within the world of which you're made call nothing common in the earth or air accept it all and let it be for good start with the very breath you breathe in now this moment's pulse this rhythm in your blood and listen to it ringing soft and low stay with the music words will come in time slow down your breathing keep it deep and slow become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time and when the heart is full of quiet Begin the song exactly where you are.
0: Begin the song exactly where you are. Well, that was The Singing Bowl by Malcolm Gite, read by himself. And I was so pleased when I found that there is an album on iTunes where Malcolm reads his poetry. Uh, so I'll put a link in that in the, in the show notes. But I thought that there would be no better way to introduce you to this poem than having Malcolm himself read it. Now, if you're not familiar with Malcolm Gite, he is a priest, a poet, and a professor who is the chaplain at Merton college i believe in cambridge and he's famous uh, largely for his poetry which he's kind of used as a gift to the church so he has a wonderful collection of poems called sounding the seasons in which he goes through the church year so um, advent and lent and ordinary time and all these different seasons and uh, has poetry associated for each each bits of those seasons. So if you've ever been interested in the liturgical year and kind of the history of that in the church and have wanted a way to engage with that personally, go find that by him. Also, I'm going to put this on my um, Advent resource list, which, P.S., I will be posting on my blog very soon. Um, but he has a wonderful collection of poems uh, called Waiting on the Word, which is for Advent, and he has a poem for every day of Advent. So he is a prolific um poet who connects his work with poetry to the church, uh, which I just appreciate so deeply about him. He's very happy for his poetry to be used, um, to be to have kind of a practical gift uh, to the church. So all with that introduction given to Malcolm, let's dive into this poem which you've just heard. We've set up this whole conversation saying that life is like that improv game, a story unfolding in dynamic interactions with others in which we have to say yes to what we are given, and we also have the agency to say and and build upon that. And I think this poem is a beautiful embodiment of the yes element of that. It's a poem that helps you begin exactly where you are, take account of what your life is, of what your story is, so that you can then... Uh, respond out of a heart of peace. And to give you a little bit of background, uh, both to the experience of what you just heard and also to the title, a singing bowl is actually a thing. So a singing bowl, they're usually called Tibetan singing bowls, are these beautifully, um, they're metal, uh, so carved is not the right word, but etched metal bowls with these beautiful designs. And uh, they're used for meditation by Tibetan monks. So you take a wooden um, little instrument and you run it around the edge of the bowl. Uh, And as you do this, slowly a reverberation begins and the bowl begins to sing. So in the poem, when you hear uh, in that reading, when he says, here it's ringing soft and low, and then you begin to start hear this ringing, that's actually a singing bowl in itself. And these singing bowls were used as a tool for meditation. Because they require you, uh, and I've done, I've used these, and so I, I haven't used them for meditation, but I've, I've uh, held a singing bowl and uh, experimented with it, and you, you have to be very consistent, very slow, and very patient. If you try to rush it, uh, the reverberation won't come, and if you are tense, uh, it will bounce, and the thing, and it won't begin to have this beautiful kind of resonant. Um, tone that comes out. It's really like the principle of if you've ever taken a crystal glass and licked your finger or, or put your finger in the water and run it around and it sings. It's like that, but a metal bowl. Um, and so these metal bowls were used for monks to kind of help them uh, get to a place of centeredness and quiet quietness because you had to be patient. It The tone was kind of something you could focus on and kind of bring peace and quietness and emptiness. It helps you focus on relaxing, on being patient. And so that's what a singing bowl is. And Malcolm uses this image or this reality of the singing bowl to help us think about coming to terms with life as it is and seeing life as it is, as the place from which we can tell a good story. So, I suppose I should actually say that it is the place from which the song of our life will emerge. We've kind of got these two different metaphors going, you know, I've begun this talking about the story that unfolds on stage as we as we improv, but this could also be seen as, as another metaphor for the song that emerges out of our life. And significantly, the poem begins and ends with the same line, which is begin the song exactly where you are. And I think this was really the key to unlocking the whole poem and was why the poem became so significant for me personally, which is that we often I think can have this sense when we think about how we we want our lives to be, what story or what song we want our lives to depict or sing. um, We can feel a dissatisfaction with that image in our mind versus where we actually are presently. So when I first read this poem, And I actually don't think it was when I first read this poem, when I, when the poem became important to me, it was at a time in life when I was feeling kind of stuck, regretful, and a bit pessimistic about life. Um, I have a feeling many people, perhaps all of us, have had an experience of that at some point in our lives, where we feel stuck, pessimistic, and maybe regretful about the way that we've lived or the choices we've made. And for me particularly, there was this sense of I I turned down two opportunities, which were good opportunities, but I just didn't feel good about. And uh, and so it kind of sent me into a season of a a fallow season where I wasn't doing or exercising my gifts and my muscles in ways that felt meaningful or purposeful. And so the sense of what I wanted life to be relationally, uh, vocationally, even spiritually, versus where I was, felt like a constant sting and a constant frustration. I felt like I couldn't tell the story I wanted to tell with my life. Uh, and that kind of manifested itself as a annoyance with or a rejection of my present reality. But to put it in the terms uh, of the improv kind of analogy we had at the beginning, if you've ever done one of those improv games, you know that sometimes you get kind of a stupid scene, right? So your partner doesn't come up with an interesting prompt or you know they do the same old tired thing over again and you have the sense of just like ugh, i just want to start with a different scene this is a dumb scene i can't add anything to it uh, and so your impulse is to say no to to say to not be able to say yes to the scene that you were in and that was kind of how i felt at that season of my life was i thought well if i were just in a different scene if i were just at a different point if, if i'd made different decisions then i could exercise agency then i could make something good out of this life But as it was, I was feeling pretty dissatisfied with where I was, pretty disappointed with myself, um, and pretty pessimistic about the ability to change the place that I was into something meaningful and purposeful. And that's when I discovered this poem, which I think is really all about this. So it begins by saying, begin the song exactly where you are. Call nothing common in earth or air. I love this, this kind of opening sequence in which he says, Okay, stop. Notice everything. Whatever is there, whatever seems common, begin here. And this is kind of an invitation to pull us out of regret, in which we're looking constantly backwards and being annoyed with ourselves with the choices we've made, or out of an anticipation of the future. And it says, What if here, this breath, this moment, this air, this water... What if here, the place where you're so dissatisfied, what if these things will become the heart of the song that your life will sing? And I think part of this, it's not just an idealistic overappreciation appreciation of where you are in life right now. It's a realistic coming to terms with the fact that you cannot get somewhere in the future without reco- reckoning with the world that you're in right now. You have to be able to say yes before you can say and. It reminds me of a psychological theory. Well, it's not a psychological theory. It's an element of um, DBT, which is like a form of therapy. They call radical acceptance, which is the idea that, um, that we waste a lot of energy, emotional energy particularly, trying to pretend like life is not the way it is. And before we can ever move forward, we have to be able to just say yes to what life is. And saying yes to what life is uh, doesn't mean approval of what life is. It doesn't mean a resignation that it'll never change. It just means seeing with as clear of eyes as you possibly can, saying yes with as much as you can to saying this is what reality is. I'm trying to form a clear picture of what reality is and not turn away from it. So in my life sometimes when I Uh, since kind of reckoning with these ideas, and even since reading this poem, sometimes that I'll do when I'm feeling dissatisfied or when I'm feeling anxious or when I'm feeling a dissonance between who I want to be and where I am, I'll just sit down and write all the true things I know. Because as this poem so beautifully illustrates, we can only make something of life when we know what life and what reality is offering us. So I'll sit down and I'll write down the things as clearly as I can that I know to be true. And that's kind of what this poem is doing for us on a a bodily sense, right? It talks about the air that you're breathing, the pulse, the rhythm, all the things that are in this very moment, trying to take with as clear as you can um, an account of what life is uh, before you have a sense then of your agency and what you can do with it. And what Geit says then is that in, in this quietness, when we reach this place of quietness, of putting ourselves fully in the present, of reckoning as completely as we can with what life is rather than what life was and we regret what life will be and we anticipate, it's out of this attentiveness to life as it is that this song begins to sing itself. And we begin to see the meaning, the possibilities, the future that could lie in our lives, once we attend to this moment and say yes to our limitations to the things that are difficult to the gifts that we have in this present moment it's only through quieting our hearts looking at life as clearly as we can that we begin to see the song that our life is already singing and that we can sing and i think for Geit, this also has an even deeper meaning which is that he as a christian as a priest never thinks that this moment is purposeless. He always sees God's breath as the thing, the spirit leading us, of inviting us into fullness, of knowing that our times are held in God's hands, that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how many mistakes we make, there's always this invitation to the richness resounding out of emptiness, timelessness resounding into time. God holds our times in his hands. And so this invitation to begin the song exactly where you are, is not an invitation to see everything in your life is perfect, Um, not an invitation to uh, imagine away the pain or the difficulty of your life, but to quiet your heart and to ask God to teach you to number your days so that we can present to him a heart of wisdom. And then as we quiet our hearts, we begin to see the meaning that can blossom even out of these difficult seasons. But this also brings something up because I think that when we begin this process, as it says, when we begin the song exactly where we are, we try to see reality as clearly as we possibly can so that we can say yes to the scene we've been given and then act in it. One of the things that can come up and one of the reasons we oftentimes deceive ourselves about what life is and don't want to look clearly at what reality is, is that sometimes when we really see life as it is, we realize that there are wounds in our lives that there are things we have lost and we have to kind of reckon with that grief sometimes saying yes to life reckoning with the story that we've been put inside means acknowledging that that story is difficult that there are unfinished wounds that there are uh, desires that aren't being met And that brings us to our next point. So if we think of our first point as beginning the song exactly where you are, trying to allow yourself to have as full as you can a sense of uh, what life is and what reality you've been given, what story you've been placed in. The second thing that I think this leads us to is that we then have to grieve what we must. Beginning to have a clear sense of what life is means that sometimes we discover wounds and we can't ever move forward to our and element. We can't ever tell the story well unless we reckon with and put to rest the griefs that we have in our heart. And that leads us to the next example, which is our visual example, which is the ladies in lavender. It is such a pleasure and one of my favorite movies, I think, when I need to have kind of a a peaceful respite from the world. Such a favorite movie, in fact, that I've actually featured it on uh, this podcast before in a similar theme of disappointment, which I will put a link into if you want to go listen to that episode. But it's such a perfect example to me of why, as we try to say yes and to life, as we try to say yes to the scene and the story we find ourselves in, and then add our own agency and choice, um, grief is actually really important. So while I don't usually repeat, I felt like I, this was just such a perfect story. I wanted to bring it back. And if you haven't seen it yet, take this as my reiterated encouragement to go see this movie, which as you can tell from this beautiful music, um, is a pure aesthetic treat. Also the, um, the soundtrack is worth the price of the movie, uh, which features the violin, the violin playing, that, that doesn't seem like the right phrase that I want, but I'm just going to go with it. The violin playing of Joshua Bell, um, because the story centers around a violinist. So as a brief kind of uh, overview, synopsis of the story, the story looks at the lives of these two older single um, Uh, sisters who are played by Maggie Smith and Judi Dench who are two of my two of the queens of British acting of course and also I just love watching both of them so they live together and I believe it's in it's during World War II they live on the coast together and they are um they are a product of what is often known as the lost generation so in World War I there was Almost a whole generation of young men lost specifically from uh, from England. And so you have many stories kind of centering around this in the, the 40s and the 50s. But there was also a meant that meant that there was a kind of generation of unmarried women. They lost most of the young eligible men. And so you had a lot of people who ended up in singleness, either being widowed or just having never gotten married. And so these are our two sisters. They live a kind of lovely cotidian life. They have a comfortable home. Um but it's just a very kind of simple single life. When all of a sudden an adventure crops up on their doorstep, which is that one day while one of them is walking on the beach, um she discovers a young man who's washed up on to shore. And so they they take him into their home and he doesn't speak English. I think he's Polish. And so they uh kind of go through all of this stuff trying to take care of him and they bring a doctor in and he um he can't communicate with them but slowly but surely he starts to ling- learn English and they discover that he can actually play the violin and they realize he's really very gifted at this and um, eventually this unfolds into the story um, that he's actually a professional violinist and then you kind of see how this progresses and he ends up being able to play the violin um, but kind of the central emotional tension of the story revolves around the fact that there's um, that Judy Dench kind of she, this makes it sound creepy, but it's really not creepy. She kind of develops this, this strong affection for him, almost this kind of melding of mother love and the romantic love that she never got. So it's, it's not at all, um, twisted or anything, but she loves this violinist and she comes to kind of a deep affection for him. And when opportunities for him, uh, begin to come up for music, she, almost can't fathom the idea of letting him go away and, and pursue these, th- his gifts and music. And, um, and this kind of puts a strain on her relationship with him and on her relationship with her sister. And you can tell that it's kind of bringing up some deeper emotion within her uh, and making her life difficult. And as we kind of get insight into the backgrounds of these characters, we realize that while Maggie Smith, um, in her youth, loved a young man deeply. Uh, and was engaged to him, he went to war and died. Whereas Judy Dinch never got her husband, never got her experience of true love, never got to have children. And you have this sense in which she is putting all of that stored up emotion that she wanted to put into having a husband that she wanted to put into having children into this affection that she feels for this young violinist. And, um, and in that sense, she's kind of stored up this unspent grief, this unspent grief over the life that she wished and hoped that she would have. And because she hasn't grieved these things, she projects him, these onto him uh, in such a way that it creates tension. And what she kind of realizes as the story goes on is that she's unable to experience in its fullness the gift of this young musician and their community in town because she hasn't grieved the life that she thought that she would had, she would have. And so... As she comes to terms with this, she kind of does grieve it, and then she's able to say what a gift it was to have this young musician, the way it's transformed their town and their experience. But to me, this is a really good picture of of what happens in our lives when we kind of have unspent griefs that we haven't dealt with, which is that it keeps us from being able to say yes to reality as it is, and then kind of paralyzes us in our ability to tell a good story with reality as it unfolds in the future. Uh, it's kind of like we're lying to ourselves. Um, we haven't let ourselves fully accept what reality is in front of us. We haven't fully said yes to the story that we find ourselves in. And again, this doesn't mean that we need to uh, say that all the elements of our stories were good or or they're okay. Um, but we have to be able to acknowledge that they're there. And then acknowledging that they're there also means that sometimes we need to allow ourselves the space to grieve um, the things that didn't happen and this can grief can can have many different forms it can be grieving things that we've lost it can be grieving things that we thought would be but can't be or haven't been when i think about our generation i think um, something i see often in, in in my generation a little bit older is the grief of desiring marriage or desiring children and not being able to get it or on the other hand uh, that of The thought that we would all kind of be able to have easy financial situations or live near family. And we all find ourselves in these really disappointing worlds. Um, But if we never reckon with those ways that we thought that our lives would be and grieve the fact that our life is not that way, then we'll continue to not be operating in reality. We won't be able to say yes to the story that we're in. And that also means, I think sometimes we're afraid to reckon with reality, to really grieve those things, because we fear then that whatever those desires were caught up in will never be fulfilled. But what this movie shows so beautifully is that if we don't grieve the way that we thought our lives would be, then we can't enjoy the gifts of what our life actually is. And I would say, I think another aspect of this that I've realized in my own life is sometimes grieving uh, who we thought people would be to us so that we can embrace who they are. It's so easy to hold people accountable to some image we had of them in our minds, whether that image was them having a personality type that perfectly suited ours and friendship or um, them having romantic feelings for us, or uh, even when you're in a romantic relationship, them being a particular kind of romantic partner to you. And as long as we're holding that expectation in our minds and not reckoning with the person that's there in front of us we will constantly be disappointed or running into attention with who that person actually is. And this is, of course, what happens in Ladies in Lavender, is she hasn't given her sp- herself the space to grieve what she thought life would be, and so she's not able to embrace what life actually is. One way I've often thought about this is a literary parallel, which I'm sure at some point I'll explore more deeply in this podcast, but is in George MacDonald's novel Lilith, there's this character called Mara, which of course means weeping or sorrow or bitterness. And to be redeemed in the context of the story, the characters have to go to the house of Mara. Uh, they have to go to the house of weeping. And it's kind of this picture of MacDonald saying that sometimes to be redeemed, to live a good life, to reckon with the world as it is, we have to go to the house of Mara. We have to let ourselves weep about the things that we've done wrong, about um, the things we wish would be and that aren't, the unfulfilled dreams, um, the wounds that we've received over life. But we can never move forward and embrace life and do something with life unless we let ourselves go to the house of weeping. And I think our world has a really hard time with this. We don't have a space for grieving and grieving well. And also, I think we have a very, very tiny, small space for grief where we grieve things like death and... Um, or maybe huge losses. And even those are very kind of, uh, hemmed in and our time for grieving is given very short. We don't have rituals of grief like other older societies did, or we, we did in a hundred years ago. Uh, but we also don't have space for grieving things like, um, unlived up to hopes, grieving the marriages. We don't have grieving the jobs. We, we don't have a way of kind of saying, yeah, life isn't what I thought it would be. But in my own life, I've realized that it's been really important to preserve that space and that actually I'm not able to engage with life um, with, with that kind of hopeful and courageous attitude unless I've also let myself kind of put my finger on the things that I've lost, the things I thought life would be, the people that I thought could be faithful to me, the people I thought would be different than they were and aren't. I can't really move forward in life until I let myself have the space to be sad. And I think the other thing that I've realized with that too is that that's not always a one-time thing. There are some things we will grieve over and over again, but we have to kind of be intentional about knowing that that's there. We have to, if if we have to grieve a person being different, if you have somebody in your life who's uh, close to you and is a disappointment, but you can't get rid of them because they're family or because um, you're responsible for them or because it's in church, Sometimes you have to let yourself have the space to go, I might have to grieve this off and on my whole life, but I will do that if, it, if it's what it takes me to live a good life, to say yes to the story that I've been put inside. So I think grief is a huge part of saying yes to life because it's reckoning with life uh, as clearly, with as clear of eyes and as clear of vision as we possibly can, uh, which oftentimes leads us to, to understand that we have had losses or hurts. Uh, but grieving is a good thing because it helps us live in the present and move forward, not being hampered by the regret that we carry from the past or the anticipation we carry for the future. And I think that The Ladies in Lavender is a really redemptive and beautiful look of that because you see Judy Dench's struggle um, as she kind of projects this unspent grief onto this relationship and it causes tension. But then you also see that as she is able to grieve the life that she didn't have and wishes that she had, She's then able to accept the gift of this relationship and this renewed community and this beauty because she has grieved. So up to this point, we've stuck mainly with the elements of saying yes to the story we've been given. We've talked about beginning exactly where we are, believing that the materials and things we find so frustrating and dissatisfying in our life might become the very heart of the song that our life will sing We've looked then at once we've reckoned with life as it is, allowing ourselves the space to grieve so that our hands can be open and ready to receive what the future offers. But now we can pivot towards the agency aspect of this conversation. We can move from the yes of trying to see life clearly and grieve it fully to the and of what it looks like to say yes to our lives and to use our agency to shape them into something worthwhile and good. And to do that, we're going to explore the mirrored plots and the mirrored music of Jean Valjean and Javert in the musical version of Les Mis. Now, if any of you have not seen Les Mis, what a treat you have ahead of you. I don't know if I would actually say if you've seen Les Mis, because I like the movie. Um, and every time I watch it, I it's it's weird. It's like a magic bullet that makes me cry. I don't usually cry at movies. I can name probably on one hand, uh, the number of movies that have actually made me like cry more than a single tear. Um, but the musical version of Les Mis, uh, they produced a few years ago with Hugh Jackman, is one of those movies that magically turns on the faucet of my eyeballs. Um, but even before I watched that movie, I grew up, we had a, a piano book of the music, and my family grew up singing the music together, and there were, there was a beautiful um, soundtrack version of it you can get from the, the 10th anniversary. Uh, and so I grew up with these songs. Before I really encountered Les Mis either as a novel or as a movie or play, I encountered the music itself. Um, and there's something... Uh, Les Mis is just one of the great stories. Um, one of the greatest stories I think that has ever been told. And the fact that it has this kind of narrative core of gold is, is played out and how much people love the book, but also then how what a masterpiece the musical is. I think it's rare to have... Um, this relationship between a work, like a novel, and an adaptation, where both of them are masterpieces. I think sometimes you'll find, like, a musical adaptation will be a masterpiece that made something of a book that was good but wasn't great. Or on the flip side of that, you'll have an adaptation but that's, like, good and fun to watch, but you really only watch it because you already loved the novel. But with Les Mis, both are these kind of independently um, masterful works. And I read the actual novel, most of it. I will not lie. I have not read Les Mis from cover to cover because there are some bits that are just extremely long. Like when he talks about sewers for literally a hundred pages, sewers in Paris anyway. Um, but I read most of Les Mis my first year when, uh, in St. Andrews and I was doing my master's partially because I was commissioned to write a play. Um, which is another long story, (laughs) a one-act play on Javert's um, kind of narrative, which will be the basis for some of our conversation today. Uh, And then also partially because I had a period of intense jet lag when I got back from Christmas, where I would wake up at like 3am and just not be able to get back to sleep. And so I got Le Miz out of the library and I thought, well, this is research and I would sit and just read it for hours. And it's such a gift of a book. Um, but in doing that, and in preparing to write um, this this one act play on Javert's life, the thing I discovered is that uh, that there's this there's this relationship between Javert's character and Jean Valjean's character where their lives mirror each other um, in interesting ways. But I guess before I say that, I should tell you what Les Mis is actually about in case you haven't seen it. So Les Mis is a, a novel that follows many storylines. It takes place in France in the 19th century, around the time that you're having all these revolutions. And it plays a lot on questions of justice, um, both in the sense of what we do with criminals, in the sense of revolutions. Um, justice, one's relationship with God, if redemption is possible, Mercy, it's it's got every good theme you could want, and it follows the really it follows the story of Jean Valjean, who is originally when we first meet him he is a criminal, um, and when we say this, um, this is where these questions of justice come in. He is a criminal and that he has broken a law. But the law that he broke was that he stole a loaf of bread to feed one of his one of his sister's starving children, and he's thrown into jail. And he spends all this time, and he in jail he tries to escape, and so he keeps on getting a bigger and bigger sentence. And while he's in jail, he encounters this person called Javert, who is this police inspector. Who is um, I'm actually trying to remember if in the book he encounters Javert in jail or if that's just an innovation of the musical. But Javert is this. This man who came from a difficult background, uh, from a kind of impoverished background, but who's now a police inspector and quite prominent, and his whole life is built on a belief in justice and fairness, and he's kind of, he is truly merciless. If you break a rule, Javert says, you have incurred wrath upon yourself, and that's a bummer, your life will be difficult. Um, And Whereas Jean Valjean has this sense of the injustice of the system. So Javert really trusts in it. Jean Valjean has this kind of sense of, I didn't really, was it really wrong? Did I really deserve to be thrown into jail um, for 16 years for stealing a loaf of bread? So he has this distrust in the system of justice. Javert has a complete trust in it. And it's kind of their, um, that's kind of their other side. So anyway, um, Jean Valjean is finally released from prison. And almost as soon as he's released from prison, he has this experience with a um, where he's he's taken in. You know, he hasn't had a job. He doesn't know how to relate. Nobody wants to relate to him because he's he has this mark of being a criminal. But um, he's invited into the home of this priest um, who is a bishop. Um, and the bishop shows him great kindness. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of literature. Uh, if you just read, be worth the price of the book just for this passage about, um, the Bishop, but he goes and he stays with the Bishop and his two sisters and they're kind to him. And he kind of doesn't understand why they only show him graciousness and kindness. Um, but then he, in the middle of the night gets up and he steals these golden candlesticks from the Bishop and he runs away and he's almost immediately caught. And, um, the police bring him back to the Bishop and they say, look, he's stolen your candlesticks. He's fresh out of jail. He's going back in. He's never coming out. And the bishop, in this moment of miraculous mercy, um, lies and says, I gave him the candlesticks. I meant for him to take the candlesticks. I wanted him to start a new life. And the police are kind of, they kind of um, doubt this decision. But uh, the bishop insists, and so the police leave. And the bishop looks at Jean Valjean and he says, I have bought your soul for God. So by getting him out of having to go back to jail, he pleads with him to live a new life, a life of redemption, because he has bought his soul for God by allowing him out of this uh, merciless justice system. And so then it follows Jean Valjean's life after this, and the way that this, this act of mercy, this act of costly mercy from the bishop where he gives him the one thing of value that he really has through these gold candlesticks. Make it so that Jean Valjean has a life that is not his own. And I, so I set up this story because um, in that moment, and this is what I ended up focusing on in my play, in that moment, Jean Valjean is given a new life. But part of of the cost of this new life is that he can no longer define himself. He has been, um, he's kind of, he lives in the debt of mercy to the Bishop. And at this point he has kind of two options. Either he can say yes to this new life that has been given to him and he can live, um, under this costly mercy in light of this costly mercy or, um, really, that's the only option. Or he can can live in rejection of it, but not be living in reality. And so this, to me, is a beautiful picture of yes and. So Jean Valjean is given this life that he can no longer define. He no longer has the power to define it. The bishop has radically altered him, has altered his identity and his destiny by this act of mercy. And he has the choice of what do I do now with this new life that has been given me? And the story we see in Jean Valjean, he's not perfect, but he uses that life that has been given back to him with as much fervor and kindness and goodness as he possibly can. He becomes a transformed man. He says, yes, this new life he's been given, and with his own agency in light of this mercy that's been shown to him, he becomes an agent of mercy in many other people's lives. Now, this drives Javert crazy, because Javert's Javert's worldview is that, um, mercy doesn't work, that people are what they are. They should get their just desserts and, um, that justice always, uh, will feast in the end. A merciless justice. Uh, but Javert also, so I said earlier, they have this mirrored storyline and the mirror comes when Javert, so Jean Valjean kind of has he has this desire to shape his own narrative by saying everything's been wrong it hasn't been fair I've been wronged Um, life is unjust and I can't uh, I can't do anything about it and then the bishop breaks that narrative and says well actually that's that's not true you too have wronged but I'm giving you out of mercy this new life Javert also has this very strong narrative that he wants to define about life which is that everyone gets what's just the justice system is correct Um, mercy is 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 a weakness But then there's this important scene, and I won't give away exactly what happens, but where, in a similar manner to the bishop, Jean Valjean shows Javert mercy in such a way that Javert can no longer define his life through his own definitions. He is given a mercy. He's given a new reality, which either he can say yes and and live into, or he can can die. And so you may think that I'm making this up, that these two storylines mirror each other. But the musical picks this up um, in that immediately after Jean Valjean's experience with the bishop, we have this song called The Soliloquy. And in the exact same musical forms that are used for the soliloquy, which is kind of represents this choice for Jean Valjean to live into this new life of mercy or not, the exact same music is used um, for Javert's Suicide. Uh, which is when Jean Valjean shows Javert mercy and and Javert has to decide. So I'm going to demonstrate that for you um, by kind of breaking up these two songs into kind of the sections that each song shares. So the first thing we have is this stressful little monologue, uh, which is really both of them kind of just evaluating what has happened um, and and really having this impulse to reject the mercy that's been shown them, to not say yes to the story that's been given to them. So let me show you that, that first in Jean Valjean's Soliloquy and then in uh, Javert's Suicide. Also, I will note that I chose two, uh, two different versions. So I chose Hugh Jackman's version in Les Mis um, in the most recent film version. I There were elements of the film version I absolutely loved. Uh, I didn't choose Javert's Suicide because I love Russell Crowe. I love him so much. But his performance in this, it just kills me. I cannot listen to it. Um, he is such a good actor. He does a good job singing, but he's so focused on singing that he forgets to act. So uh, on the other hand, Hugh Jackman's Liloquy is, I think, better than any of the uh, the versions from the, the live stage version. So Hugh Jackman uh, for Jean Valjean's and then Um, I have chosen the 10th anniversary version with Philip Quast for uh, for Javert's. So first we have this little stressful monologue bit where they're reckoning with what's happening and considering rejecting mercy.
2: What have I done, sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far and is the hour so late? that nothing remains but the cry of my hate. The cries in the dark that nobody hears. Here where I stand, the turning of the years.
0: And now I'm going to switch over to Javert's Suicide, uh, which continues on in the same musical strain.
3: Who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have me caught in the trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate. Wipe out the past and wash me clean of the slate All it would take was a flick of his knife Vengeance was his and he gave me back my life Damned if I live in the debt of a thief Damned if I yield at the end of the chase. I am the law and the law is not mocked I'll spit his pity right back in his face There is nothing on earth that we share It is either Valjean
2: or Javert
0: All right, so this is kind of the first bit, which is where they are both wanting to say no to mercy. So then that leads into this next section in which the melody kind of gently returns. And we have this suggestion of considering saying yes to this new life, this new life that's defined by mercy, instead of by their own um, sense of bitterness or injustice.
2: Yet why did I allow this man To touch my soul and teach me love.
0: And now I'll switch over to Javert. Make sure to go listen to these in full. I just can't include the whole thing in this episode.
3: How can I now allow this man to hold dominion over me? This desperate man, whom I have haunted, he gave me my life, he gave me freedom. I should have perished by his hand.
0: So now from this more gentle place of kind of considering what it would be like to accept mercy, they both move into this more um, combative, argumentative musical phrase, which then ends in this big dissonant note. Uh, and this kind of looks to me and sounds to me like it's a breaking with the past that they can no longer um, that they can no longer go back to, and entering into this new reality that's been given to them by this act of mercy.
2: Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for this is all I now.
0: So now that you know that they're mimicking each other, I'm going to just play you the ending of um, Javert's, in which we go back to this kind of gentle, tentative music that kind of hovers on the edge. And it's this picture of what will Javert do with this new life that has given him? Will he say yes to it and then add his own agency and begin to change the lives of others around him like Jean Valjean does? Or will he reject his life and literally end it, unwilling to live in a reality that he cannot be the master of? And so we get this very ending bit with Javert.
3: I am reaching, but I fall and the stars are black and cold. As I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go home.
0: So this ending, this dissonant shout, um, comes as Javert literally rejects this new life of mercy that he's been given by committing suicide. It is like the taking to the extreme of a rejection of a life that we cannot define on our own. So why do I bring up these two mirrored stories about men who choose to either accept or reject a reality that they cannot define? I bring them up because ultimately, I think this is the choice that we are offered in life. Perhaps we will never have something as dramatic and theatrical as a priest giving us his best possessions, telling us that both the negative and positive parts of our life are not things we get to dictate or control, or perhaps we won't be saved by our worst enemy. But these stories remind us that at the end of the day, The life that we've been given, first of all, is one that we cannot control or predict or manipulate. The story that we've been born into is the story that we have been born into. And we can either choose to say yes to that story and to do something good with it, or we reject it. And perhaps that rejection doesn't look as dramatic as Javert's suicide. But it can look like an unwillingness to say yes to all of the marvelous, beautiful, and painful complications of our life. An unwillingness to throw ourselves in with all of our hearts and doing something good, making a good story, singing a good song with our life. But I think the second thing that these stories reveal to us is that at the heart of it, those lives that we can't control, these stories that we can't manipulate... They are founded in an act of mercy that defines who we are. I found that in my life, it's actually a pretty scary thing to say yes to all of the things that have happened to me in life. Because if I didn't have a sense of there being some deeper undercurrent of consistency or of love, I would feel like I was just thrown to the winds of fate. But when we say yes to life we can't control and then throw ourselves in into living it well, We can do that because we believe that ultimately, our identities and our destinies are defined and protected by God's mercy towards us. The priest stands as the representative of Christ to Jean Valjean. He doesn't belittle the experiences of pain and injustice that Jean Valjean has experienced, but he stands at the cusp and says, yes, all of these things are real and painful and bad. But through this act of mercy, I'm giving you the opportunity to live a life that is defined not by your mistakes or the ways others have harmed you, but by the mercy that you've experienced so that you can become an agent of that love and mercy. And this, I think for me, is the heart of what it is to be a Christian. It's to say that salvation, redemption, is not a lying about the past, about our own mistakes, about the ways that we've been wronged or hurt. It's a radical acceptance of them, but then it's looking them in the face and saying that fundamentally who we are and what we are meant for is not defined by our past, but by the act of mercy, the radical absorption of all of the negative things in the world into Christ's own sacrifice, which then begins us anew and gives us the opportunity to then become agents of that mercy in other people's life. Just as that act of mercy from the priest became the the linchpin, the turning point, and the fundamental start to Jean Valjean's story, so Christ's act of mercy becomes the fundamental element of our own story. It is the thing upon which everything else turns. And so when we say yes to life, we're saying yes to the pain and to the struggle, but more fundamentally to the fact that our identities and our histories are defined by that act and that moment. And everything else that we do lives in a radical response to God's act in our own lives. We never say this first word. We never breathe the first breath. Our and is always in response to God's fundamental, loving, and merciful yes. And so, in light of that mercy that we can never repay, in light of our souls being bought for God, as the priest so compellingly puts it, we have the option either to say yes to that mercy and live radical lives of becoming an agent of mercy in other people's lives or by rejecting it, by living in despair and deception. And friends, as we come to the end of this season, I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge you to live your life in radical acceptance of that mercy that defines all of your days and to use all the power of your agency to add the and of your life, to become an agent of empowerment and mercy and kindness to others. I think that the reality that this this story shows us is that we can use our agency to reject it or to continue to deceive ourselves, as Javert does. But we can also use our agency to become those who are then agents in that agency, agents of mercy and love to others. And that is the story that I wanted to end this season with challenging you to believe that at the heart of your life's story is God's act of mercy towards you, which neither makes little of your pain or your mistakes or your suffering, but also tells you that they are not the fundamental thing about you and about your story. So let me end today's episode and this season by listening to the final and triumphant cry of Jean Valjean's heart, Thank you all for listening to this season. I'll be putting out the Advent episodes very, very soon, and I hope to catch you around um, Patreon or on my mailing list, which you can sign up for at joyclarkson.com. As you go into this week, I hope that you will have the courage to begin the song exactly where you are, to grieve what you need to grieve, and then to do what you can in light of the mercy that's been shown you. Blessings, friends. We'll talk soon.
2: What have I done, sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run? Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate? The cries in the dark that nobody hears. here where I stand the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and they murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love. He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world. This world that always hated and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know what spirit comes to move? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall And the night is closing in As I stare into the void To the whirlpool of my sin I'll escape now from that world from the world of Shambhal-Shun. shambhal is nothing now!